Welcome to the latest Money Makers podcast. This week, we turn our attention to venture capital trusts, those specialist investment vehicles which put investors' capital to work in higher risk, relatively early stage businesses. VCTs, as they are known, offer significant potential tax benefits for those prepared to risk their money in this way. This year, for reasons that Moneymakers presenter Jonathan Davis discusses with his guest, the marketing of VCTs has started somewhat earlier than normal. Why is that, and what else do potential investors need to know about the VCT market this year? Are the tax benefits worth the rewards? Chris Hutchinson, lead manager of the Unicorn AIM VCT, is the man on the other side of the microphone for this in-depth discussion. Well, Chris, thank you very much for coming back to talk to us again. We had a good conversation last year and another one in March this year. Uh, this time, I thought it'd be good to concentrate on the the AIM VCT that you run. That's a venture capital trust that invests uh, primarily in uh, stocks listed on the London AIM market, alternative investment market. Perhaps we could just start, for those who aren't perhaps as familiar with this area as some of us are, by just explaining what a what a venture capital trust is and what the advantages of investing in a venture capital trust are. Well, good morning, Jonathan. Um, and certainly, um, venture capital trusts have been around 20-odd years now. And really, what they do is, uh, from the government's point of view, encourage investment in small to medium startups and uh, also to help bridge the funding gap that banks are still very reluctant to lend to a lot of small early stage companies. The second um, aspect of VCTs from the government's point of view is to help create employment. And both of those uh, two ambitions, in my mind, have been very clearly achieved by the VCT sector as a whole over that 20-year period. Our VCT has been in existence since 2001, so 16-odd years now, and has grown very nicely over a, a number of years and has um, certainly helped in many instances to enable companies to be successful, to grow, to uh, employ more people, and to eventually reach a point where they're maturing and becoming significant contributors to the UK economy as a whole. From an investor's point of view, there are significant uh, advantages and they revolve around uh, tax breaks offered by HM Treasury. The first and most obvious of those is that for every pound invested in a venture capital trust, the government will immediately repay 30 pence of that amount based on the income tax liability of that investor in the particular tax year. So you can't get a rebate from the government in excess of your income tax liability, and you can't invest more than £200,000 in any one tax year. Uh, so the maximum rebate you can get from your income tax liability is therefore £60,000. But of course, that's a significant benefit. And then uh, as you go through the holding period for um, a VCT investment, you have to hold those shares for five years uh, as a minimum. Uh, but during that five-year period, any dividends received are free of any income tax. And any capital gains that you make when you sell after five years are also free of capital gains tax. So potentially, if the VCT performs well, uh, then not only do you actually do well from the underlying investment that you've made, but you make those significant tax breaks as well. So 
in principle, you're doing good by helping small businesses and you're getting rewarded for that uh, with a bit of a helping hand from the from the government as well, which is uh, the government being helpful is not always something that we find happen, but in this case, it has seemed to work quite well until now. The government has very recently announced a review of uh, what it calls patient capital, which is uh, looking at ways in which uh, in the investment uh, community can support startup businesses and small growing businesses for the longer term. I think there's a feeling in, in some quarters that uh, maybe the uh, the structure is not totally fitted to supporting businesses in that way. Can you tell us what uh, what you know about that review and, and what you expect to happen from here? How um, affect you as a, as, a, as a VCT manager? Well, certainly. Uh, the uh, consultation paper has literally been released uh, this month at the start of August. The government are looking very firmly at uh, long-term capital for early-stage businesses and trying to work out how they can encourage both investors and the managers of the funds involved in this area to adopt a more long-term approach. And clearly, over the years, VCTs have developed and evolved. There were various issues surrounding certain VCTs where they tended to be asset-backed type vehicles where actually there wasn't a, a great deal of employment creation, uh, there wasn't necessarily a significant amount of risk being taken, and that actually investors were getting their money back and more simply through the tax breaks. Well, that clearly wasn't in the spirit of VCTs in the first place. I mean, it was, as I said earlier, uh, it, the intention was to provide capital for companies that were finding it very difficult to secure finance through conventional means and also significantly to help assist in employment growth in the UK generally, especially at the smaller end of the, of the market. The Patient Capital Review, therefore, is looking at various options to encourage more long-term investment thinking. And there are uh, we're in a consultation phase, so the various VCT managers will be submitting their thoughts and ideas back to government. It includes the enterprise investment schemes, and it also is covering existing investment trusts um, that focus on long-term capital. And it's very unclear at this stage as to whether or not there'll be any wholesale changes to the existing rules surrounding venture capital trusts in particular, but clearly the intention is to help direct the capital available to those companies that really need it and make sure that that is risk-based investment for the long term. And possibly also, of course, no government likes to hand out money to people when they don't feel it's being used correctly. So what will you, what will you say to the uh, in the consultation review? I'm sure you'll put in a few thoughts, or if you don't, what, what would you say? You'll say that your record in your VCT or your business is presumably you could evidence the uh, the success you've had and the help you've given to smaller startup companies. That's exactly right, Jonathan. Over the 11 and a half years that I've personally been managing this venture capital fund, there are numerous examples of businesses that started life with our first investment at a very small and early stage in their development. Uh, clearly, in some cases, uh, they were affected by the financial crisis and subsequent recession in 2008 and 2009. Many had to fight hard to survive. And I think one of the 
key issues is that, in a sense, the mentality in the UK is to provide funding on a one-off basis and expect a company to be successful from there on in. In reality, that's highly unusual, and often these businesses need secondary, even tertiary funding rounds in order to allow them to develop the scale and the size simply to be self-sustaining and get them to a point of consistent profitability. That would be something that I would certainly be encouraging HM Treasury to look at, uh, to look at the sector as a whole and to say, which of the generalist VCTs and the aim-focused VCTs are actually raising the capital and then deploying that capital in businesses uh, in a long-term and supportive way and are prepared to back them on several occasions in order to get them to the point of uh, consistent profitability. And within our VCT, as I said earlier, I mean, there are numerous examples of businesses that actually, without wanting to sound overly um, proud of, of, of what we've achieved, there are businesses that without doubt would have struggled to have survived without um, the capital that we've provided over, over that period of time. And so for me, it's a case of looking at that almost on a case-by-case basis and, and identifying the difference between those VCTs that are genuinely helping to bridge a funding gap and create employment and those VCTs that are perhaps a little less active in that sense and don't have the same track record in, in being able to demonstrate that employment growth. Well, I think we all know that there are some people like that in the, in the business. There always are when these schemes come along who maybe take advantage of the situation and do things that was not intended. But your your VCT, I mean, has, I think it's, it's has net assets of around 150 million, something like that, the AIM VCT that is, uh, which invests mainly in aimless stocks, as I said. Obviously, that's made a return for investors. How much capital, roughly, have you actually committed to investing yourself? Obviously, you raise money from investors. You then invest it, and it grows, you hope, over time, as yours has done. So would you have invested, say, $75 million or something like that? Or what, uh, what, what over the years, uh, we've invested very considerable amounts of capital. We've done f- funding rounds. The first uh, VCT, as I said, launched in September 2001. We raised $30 million at that time. Over the 15 years since, the net asset value of the VCT today is 162 million. And whilst um, we've clearly had unsuccessful investments where capital has been destroyed on a permanent basis, uh, sadly, there are a few examples of that. There have also been many examples of businesses that actually now are multi-hundred million pounds in size and continue to grow and develop and no longer require any funding, obviously, but where they employ very significant amounts of people. The exact amount that we have invested in companies over that 16-year period, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, I'm afraid, but certainly in the last 10 or 11 years, I must have deployed at least £75 million of capital and probably actually close to £100 million. And there are 70, around 75 active VCT qualifying companies within the portfolio today many of which still very small in size, um, often below 100 million in size. But as I said, the 
top 10 now are what I would call proper businesses making a real and meaningful contribution to the UK economy through the tax that they pay and through the productivity that they generate through their, their, their workforces. So It's important that the government measures that as well, of course, yeah. that they look at both sides of the ledger. But I suppose their point would be that if there weren't failures, things that had gone wrong, then, then it wouldn't be pure risk capital, would it? It would be that might be one evidence bit of evidence you could look at that if there weren't some failures then uh, then presumably you know for all your success and, and help as an investor uh, not every business you back can can be expected to succeed i think that's exactly the point actually it's striking that balance between the possibility of sensible returns to those investors who commit to a vct but at the same time, recognising that it certainly should be a risk-based investment. And I think that's really where the focus lies now, is to make sure that the industry as a whole is deploying that capital uh, specifically at uh, very early stage companies where the capital is needed and where the government absolutely accepts that um, you won't have a 100% success rate, where attrition failures within those businesses is part of the expected profile. And, and they don't, uh, they're very realistic about it, uh, as we are, I think, generally within the VCT industry. Uh, there's no doubt that you know we're always aiming to invest um, shareholders' money wisely, but uh, clearly when a business is very young and immature, uh, mistakes can be made and people can underestimate the cost of building out that business plan. And sometimes, sadly, the funding is not there to enable the business to continue. I think what I could say, which perhaps you can't say, but I could certainly say from my experience is that one other argument you can make, of course, is that however well or badly you do the job, it's probably going to be better than the government trying to do it itself. The track record of picking winners has been pretty poor over the years. But without asking you to comment on that, uh, I think one of the things that confuses people about VCTs is that they are designed to be, and indeed, uh, if you read the small print, at least marketed as being you know, risk ventures, risk capital. I think what confuses people is that quite often, you know, the attraction of the tax-free dividends, you find that most of the return is coming in the form of dividends, which are tax-free if, you, if you've held the shares in the right form. And most people would expect higher-risk speculative startup companies not to be paying dividends. So how do, you, how do you kind of square that circle with your investors? Well, Jonathan, that's a f fascinating question. And for me, there is almost an element potentially of the successful VCT managers who have nurtured these businesses, provided the capital, seen the businesses grow slowly over time, become more and more uh, successful, become strong financially in their own right. Um, that is a maturing process. As I said, our VCT has been around 16 years. I've been running it for over 11 and it gives me a great deal of satisfaction to see some of those businesses looking back when they were really very, very small, now generating significant levels of profit, lots of free cash flow. Many cases, they have no debt on their balance sheet at all. In fact, they're sitting in net cash in, in many, many cases. And so they are in a position to pay back a certain amount to shareholders in the form of dividends. We receive that income within the VCT, which we can then distribute out back to our shareholders via these tax-free dividends that are eligible within the VCT rules. Now, I think it's slightly perverse to penalise VCTs that have been successful in that sense. And so there should be a balance between recognising that actually those shareholders have 
gone through very uncertain times, are now in a position to benefit from consistent and potentially growing tax-free dividend income stream over time, but where new capital is actually then continuing to be deployed into early-stage, higher-risk investment opportunities. And that's the key distinction, I think, um, to just over well, about two years ago, it was actually November 2015, there were some big changes to the VCT rules, tightening up um, what kinds of companies were eligible for state aid. And this state aid question is really quite important because what Treasury and, uh, and HMRC successfully did was narrow the band of eligible businesses so that actually all VCT managers were now being forced to look at earlier stage investment opportunities. That uh, new capital that we raise within our VCT gets deployed in those earlier stage businesses, but we have an established strongly performing pool of assets that have been through the same process over the previous 10 years. And we'd fully expect a good number, a good proportion of the new investments we make to follow that same profile over time, albeit now that we're investing at a slightly earlier stage, and therefore there will probably be a higher attrition rate in the initial years as that capital is deployed in, in much younger, earlier stage businesses. So you're in the process now of raising some money for this year. You normally raise money every year for the VCT to, to make those new investments. Uh, you've started the process of raising the money this year. I think last year, uh, well, earlier this year, in fact, when you raised your last tranche in January, you said that uh, basically you had all the money you needed after nine or 10 days, which was like kind of a bit of a mad rush at the January sales. This time you're looking to raise some more money starting earlier in the year. Is there any reason why people who are thinking about investing in a VCT such as yours, and, and yours in particular, should worry about the review that the government's doing? Do you think they're going to change the rules and adversely affect people? I think most investors recognize that these tax advantage schemes, including enterprise investment schemes and venture capital trusts, uh, should and do carry a degree, a higher degree of risk to their capital. I, I think that's accepted, it's understood, and and it's well established. I think personally, if HMRC and Treasury successfully engage with the VCT community to come up with uh, proposals that actually are workable and that actually specifically direct that new capital to the kinds of businesses that Treasury wants to encourage and support, then that's a good thing. Uh, what does it mean for new investors? Well, frankly, um, because we've got this established pool of existing assets, I think, yes, it slightly changes the risk profile. Yes, people understand that the new capital will be deployed in, in early stage businesses, but they're generally speaking quite comfortable with that. The reason we have come out now to raise more money is more a reflection of the supply-demand imbalance. We were very acutely aware uh, that having raised £15 million early uh, in 2017, that actually um, there were a lot of disappointed investors who weren't able to get their application forms in quickly enough, that subsequently therefore missed out, uh, and who were disappointed as a consequence. So uh, we've got to strike a balance between understanding that there's a 
limit in, in my mind to the size of capital that you should have available uh, for a relatively limited pool of investment opportunities and balance that against the fact that um, there are a lot of uh, shareholders and potential new investors who want to participate in these schemes, despite whether the uh, government changes or makes it more restrictive in future. I can't second guess what will happen in the budget in November. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they tighten up the rules a bit, but I can't uh, make any um, sort of insightful comment about what their thinking is right now. We're in this early stage consultation. Uh, so we just decided it was sensible to come out with an offer now and um, help um, supply a bit more capacity to the market, given there is um, pent up demand out there. So you raised 50 million in January, and now you're looking to raise another 30 million. And how quickly will you be able to actually to deploy that? As you say, there may be demand there, but you've got to find the opportunities. I suppose it would look a little bad if you raised all this money and then couldn't find anything to do with it. That would not sort of go play well, I guess. So um, you're confident there are enough opportunities out there that you can deploy 30 million in relatively quick order, are you? Again, it's an excellent question, Jonathan, and we think long and hard about this decision uh, every time we uh, consider raising new capital. For me, it is useful to look back over the last 12 months and to know that um, we have always had a selective approach to the investments that we try and make for the fund because clearly we're trying uh, to avoid the howlers and to invest only in the businesses where we have the highest level of confidence. It's not about the tail wagging the dog. We don't want to invest or be forced to invest simply to meet the VCT qualifying rules. So looking back over the last 12 months, we've raised that 15 million. Uh, I've deployed 12 million pounds in VCT qualifying companies in the last 12 months. Uh, I've used a lot of that new capital raised already. And I am confident, actually, that not only have we been able to retain our selective approach to investment, but that there is sufficient quality of companies coming through that are qualifying under the VCT rules that give me that opportunity to retain that selective approach, which to me is absolutely crucial. And do you think that that money will go primarily into aimlessness stocks or into you are allowed to invest in some other things as well, obviously, to maintain liquidity in the fund? Uh, but your particular focus is is the AIM market. And as you say, your common, there's enough opportunities there for things that are not only available, but also meet the criteria and uh, also will promise to make you the kind of returns you're looking for. Certainly. And the experience in the last 12 months has demonstrated that the um, broking community, the corporate finance departments within the small cap brokers have been really quite active in unearthing businesses that are looking for an AIM flotation. But we are also in a happy position where we can do what is called pre-IPO investment, that is investing in companies that are nearly ready to get a listing, but not quite. And so um, they remain private and we can access those deals on a selective basis and invest in them, knowing full well that there will be almost certainly a second opportunity to invest again when they're ready to come to AIM in, say, 12 to 18 months' time. We've been able to do that successfully over recent years. I was a little concerned in the aftermath of, of, of the rule changes in November 2015, but it soon became apparent that actually deal flow hadn't been uh, significantly affected. We've seen a lot of um, opportunities over recent months, and I think in the final quarter of calendar 2017, again, subject to the market remaining relatively stable, I think there is a significant pipeline 
of opportunities to come through. There's one other factor here, which is, in my mind, extremely important. We control the tap, if you like. And if I feel I have three years under the rules in which to deploy new capital, um, I have to have 70% of that capital invested, 70% by total assets, invested in qualifying companies at all times. So I have three years to do deals now, given the size of the fund as it is today. That equates roughly to five investments of about two million each in size over the next three years. So 15 investments, looking for 15 investments over the next three years to deploy that 30 million in new capital, uh, which works out at five a year. Uh, Not a massive pressure. It allows me to take my time. It allows me to stick to that proven, tried, tested, selective approach. uh, And as I say, not feel under pressure to make investments simply to meet the qualifying rules. We are in the position, however, if I felt at any stage that it was getting more difficult to access sensible deals, we'd simply turn the tap off for future fundraisings and not seek to raise new capital so that actually it takes the pressure off straight away. I think one thing that I've heard said by many people at the moment is that uh, we all know private equity funds have been raising an awful lot of money looking for these opportunities uh, in earlier, particularly in unquoted uh, companies that are destined for the market in due course. Is your experience, you're actually finding it uh, you say there's plenty of opportunities, but you're up against some stiff competition, are you not, in many cases? Well, um, that's that might well seem to be the case uh, on a superficial basis. In reality, what's happening, uh, we are fortunate in that we are well known for being aim-focused. There are actually only four sizable aim-focused VCTs in the market that are raising money on a regular basis. And therefore, the competition, if you like, for the kinds of investments that we typically make is relatively limited. We're not private equity in that sense. We don't seek to own a significant equity stake in a business, nor do we seek um, board representation, nor do we seek to influence the, the, the direction of travel of that business in any active activist sense. So on the one hand, um, we're, we're very different, but on the other hand, we are still faced with the same rules. A company that qualifies for state aid is only allowed to raise £5 million in any 12-month period. I was talking earlier about my typical investment size today being around two million. So we're nudging up towards half of the of an individual company's state aid allowance on an annual basis. And therefore, occasionally we can get into a situation where there is a little bit of competitive tension about allocation and we have to fight our corner in the same way as every other VCT manager does if we're very keen to invest in that company and there's a high degree of demand. I think over the years, the broking community and the VCT community, we've become quite adept at understanding those restrictions and pressures and actually the allocation tends to be very fair. My approach is quite simple from the outset. If I'm interested in a business and I've met the management team and I've done my homework on it and I'm ready to make an investment, I will tell the broker from a very early stage that unless I can get at least a 1% to 1.5% weighting in an individual uh, stock in, in a new investment within the portfolio, then it's not really worth doing. So at 1%, that currently is a £1.6 million investment. And therefore, 
if they're not able to do that, I will occasionally reluctantly say, well, we'd have liked to invest, but actually it's now down to the management team of that business to work out whether or not they want unicorn asset management on their shareholder register as a long-term investor or not. And sometimes they choose other VCT managers in preference to us. But allocation, just to finish on that subject, allocation to me has not been an issue. Uh, occasionally I have to work quite hard to make sure I get my share, but it's it's standard practice, to be fair. Well, let's have a quick look at the AVCT itself. I think I got this right. You have about 100 million shares in issue and the NAV is about 160p, something like that. So it's the asset value is about 160 billion, I guess, if you take the thing in the round. And the share price is about 140 today. So VCTs, they do tend to trade at a discount to the asset value, but you're also paying a dividend. Last year, I think you paid about 6.25p. I think that's right. So that's a that's a yield of the share price of, of quite a reasonable yield of the share price of about five percent, I think. So looking forward, though, what are your ambitions for the VCT? How what, what do you think that uh, you can say to investors about what you might be able to achieve going from from this point onwards? The situation today is that over many years we've been able to deliver consistent levels of dividend at an attractive yield. I mean, I think in fact because of the capital growth of the fund over over recent times, the yield's probably closer to around 4% today. But nonetheless, that's, that's very attractive, especially when you gross that up for higher rate taxpayers. We've been growing those dividends modestly um, every couple of years. We've been able to just lift the rate of, uh, of dividend payments. Uh, those dividend payments back to shareholders are becoming quite substantial. We paid well over 38 million in the last um, six or so years since we merged two of our VCTs into one in March 2010. Um, so that's actually seven years now. And we fully expect to be able to continue that uh, attractive dividend income stream. But there are a number of factors here. Firstly, you know, I've always felt that if I'm going to put a pound of my own money into a company, I don't really want to lose a significant amount of the capital value of that pound. Um, so I am naturally risk averse. Um, it would be wrong for me to say that capital preservation uh, today is is a huge priority in the sense that the new money will definitely be directed to early stage businesses and therefore clearly the outcomes will be more binary. But as I've said many times now, we've got this solid asset base behind us. I think in any five-year holding period, um, we would expect to continue those dividend uh, payments and therefore new investors coming in under this offer would get access to a dividend payment in year one and should be able to hope for and expect regular dividend payments. At least we've now moved to dividend payments twice yearly, so an interim and a final dividend. I feel very confident that we can continue that track record established over many years. Uh, we have plenty of reserves available to support those dividend payments. And then over any five-year period, we would hope to achieve some capital growth for all our investors. But, you know, I've always regarded this as risk capital investment, and there are clearly no guarantees either in terms of general market behavior nor in terms of the success of the new investments that we make within the VCT. However, uh, whilst one should always say that the past is no guide to the future, uh, at least shareholders can see a long established and successful track record within our VCT, uh, whereby we've consistently stuck to our knitting. Uh, in terms of the discount policy, 
Um, we're unusual, really, because the board of our VCT is trying to strike a balance between the requirements of exiting shareholders who will have, by definition of the rules, will have held their investment for at least five years, uh, and those of new investors coming into the VCT who have no opportunity to sell their shares for at least five years. Now, many of the VCT managers, and this is not a criticism of them at all or their boards, but many of them have chosen to have a maximum discount in place between 5 and 10% typically. Our board's approach is slightly different. Uh, they're aiming to keep the discount within our VCT at or around the same level as the smaller company's investment trust sector as a whole, and to recognize that actually markets can go down just as easily as they go up. Uh, I certainly have a long memory. I'm sure you do, Jonathan, but 2008 was carnage, yes. uh, and it took a long time for people to, in many cases to recover value. Now, if we were to go into a market shock scenario, Clearly, those shareholders who had held their shares for five years might uh, look to exit very rapidly at a maximum level of discount of 5%. The manager would then be under significant pressure to raise cash to meet those redemption requests, and therefore they would probably be selling their best performing, most liquid assets in order to raise the capital in order to pay back those uh, shareholders who are choosing to leave. Uh, that in potentially disadvantages those new shareholders who clearly are not in a position to sell because of the tax break restrictions. And so we're always trying to create and, and, and establish this balance between the needs of exiting shareholders and the requirements of those who are choosing either because they are long-term loyal shareholders or because they're new uh, and are therefore required to uh, hold on to their shares. Uh, looking after those loyal shareholders as well. And, and that balance is not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. But I think we've struck a happy medium on both sides. So to sum it up, in a way, you, you have a sort of broad commitment to maintain the discount at a similar-ish level to the equivalent smaller company investment trust, but there's no absolute commitment to buy them back at a, a given discount to the asset price. Um, absolutely right? right. And I think the current discounts around 115 to 12%, and it hovers between 10 and 15% over the, over recent years, depending more often than not on, on market conditions. Discounts tend to widen a little bit when markets are under stress, and they narrow when people are confident. And, and I think that's absolutely accepted within the investment trust world. Uh, it just seems to be something that is an area of focus, uh, curiously, within the VCT sector, and people don't actually appreciate that if you've got a long established and successful VCT, it has all the characteristics in many cases of a mainstream UK smaller companies investment trust, but it just so happens to have many attractive tax breaks associated with being a VCT. And therefore, I don't see why we should feel under any particular pressure to offer guaranteed discount levels. And I, and I certainly would say that over the long period that I've been personally managing this fund, we've never had an instance where a shareholder has struggled to exit, even during the really dark days of late 2008, nor have we ever had a situation where a shareholder's actively complained about the level of discount offered. And that's because we do these buybacks on a monthly basis. The board authorise them monthly. They are linked to 
the release of the previous month's net asset value and therefore there's complete transparency over the price being offered. And because the underlying investments predominantly are listed on AIM, you get transparency and value as well because they're marked to market on a daily basis. The price is what the, for the underlying investments what the market decides uh, the price should be. Uh, and therefore, unlike a generalist VCT, where they tend to be invested almost exclusively in private businesses where valuations at best probably only happen on a quarterly basis. Our underlying portfolio is valued on a daily basis by the market independently. And therefore, you, the shareholder gets true transparency over the price being offered versus the net asset value that has just been released. I think it's fair to say there's also shareholders have to consider the fact that there may be a quite a wide spread between the bid and the offer price on in the market on, on the shares. But I mean, it's not actually on that point, Jonathan, it's actually a very good point. The spread on the underlying investments can often be quite wide because of the um, size and liquidity of some of those um, smaller companies. But actually, £160 million venture capital trust, the spread's typically only 1 or 2p on a share price of £1.40. So about 1% to 2% maximum is the spread normally. That compares quite favourably to some, uh, some, which, which some listed compares, companies. Com- compares very favourably yes. with many listed companies, yeah. Well, I can't let you go without uh, asking just a little bit about uh, where we are in the market and and, uh, and and valuations. There's two points I really make. One, I'd like to ask you about, obviously, everybody wants to know about Brexit and whether it's going to have an impact on the kind of companies that you invest in. We talked about that before, and, uh, and you said you were pleasantly surprised by how well uh, businesses had held up and, and, and how little so far they've been impacted by the imminence of Brexit. That's one point. And the second point, though, is a slightly different one, which is in part because of the success of VCTs like yours and, and the success of, of firms that offer um, what's called IHT, inheritance tax portfolios in, in AIM companies. A lot of the companies that on AIM that are good companies are really quite expensive to buy. Um, I mean, I'm looking through some of the P's. Uh, there's some quite, quite high price earnings ratios on some of these stocks. And because they're all people like yourself want to own these things because they're good companies, you don't want to sell them. Uh, is there not a risk that if we do have a market setback, they'll be more adversely hit than uh, than many other companies? There's two questions there. Jonathan, if I may, I'll tackle the second question first. Yes, it's true to say that the popularity of inheritance and tax portfolio services has grown significantly in recent years, and they tend to invest in AIM companies on a regular basis, actually. Uh, and I think the trigger for that was clearly the Uh, government changing the rules over allowing AIM stocks in ISAs. Uh, And that has uh, suddenly meant that um, uh, there are something like 7 million uh, ISA holders who are already over the age of 65. And and, uh, inevitably, they'll be looking at some of their inheritance tax planning. And this is an obvious way for them to do it. And what that's meant is that um, many of the high-quality AIM-listed companies that qualify for business property relief have been and have become quite popular. Uh, That has meant that their valuations have risen to an extent. Is there a valuation bubble in place at the moment? The answer to that, very definitely no, in my opinion. Is there a risk of an asset bubble developing over time? Potentially. And the reason I say that is many of us focus almost exclusively on price earnings valuations and superficially, many of those now for these successful AIM listed companies can look quite scary. 
What we try and do is focus on growth and established earnings growth over time. And if a company is able to grow at above normal market rates and you link that earnings growth to the price earnings ratio, you end up with a peg ratio. And if you can derive comfort from that, where actually the peg ratio is at or around 1 to 1.5, rather than something excessive, then we suddenly start feeling a lot more comfortable about uh, investing in those businesses. And for us, it's always been about the quality of the revenue stream, the quality of the cash flow generation and ultimately the strength of the balance sheet and the quality and experience of the management teams that we're trying to back. Uh, and if we can get those things right more often than not, very often the valuation argument takes care of itself. Now, there's an inevitability about a market correction at some stage. We've been around I've long been enough to see yep. um, booms and busts on regular occasions. And yes. it's fair to say that the market's been incredibly resilient over, well, let's say since March 2009. So that's um, well over eight years now. And to me, in some ways, that's been quite surprising. And until you look at the alternative asset classes and their relative attractions. And I think that gives us also a great deal of comfort that equities remain the asset class of choice and will remain the asset class of choice. Uh, UK equities in particular, ever since Sterling's devaluation post-Brexit, have become much more attractive to overseas investors, as have UK businesses. That tends to underpin valuations as well. And at the same time, the IHT situation, I'm very hesitant to say things like uh, it, it's different this time around because it very rarely is. Uh, but it's slightly different this time around. We haven't tested it yet. But the interesting thing about um, someone investing in an IHT portfolio is that they have to hold those shares for a minimum of two years and they have to be holding them on death in order to be entitled to the inheritance tax relief. That's right. Relief. Holding their share certificates. So Indeed. Indeed, uh, yes, not, <laughs> not literally clutching them in their hands, but nonetheless, uh, they do need to own those shares uh, for a minimum of two years, and they do need to be owning them on death. Now, if and when we have another market correction, it'll be fascinating to see what the behavior is, because on the one hand, Normally what happens is smaller, less liquid, aim-listed companies tend to be sold off very sharply by the private retail investor. Uh, the market makers then um, widen spreads and they uh, mark the share price down until they can flush out a buyer. And that can be quite harsh, quite savage, and you can lose a lot of value very quickly. This time around, there's at least a billion to a billion and a half of IHT money tied up in AIM stocks, which can actually go nowhere in terms of being naturally sold. They will not come into the market. In fact, many people might continue to use the opportunity of a market correction to buy more of their quality AIM stocks in a sort of falling uh, market environment. So I actually think there, there is a compelling argument, say, that AIM will behave relatively resiliently the next time there is a market correction. Whereas in 2008, which I suppose was the most recent extreme example of a market meltdown, AIM was down around 68% in 
calendar 2008, the market as a whole was down around 30-odd percent. Um, so I'm not saying it will happen, but it'll be very interesting to see what the behaviours are because a lot of that money is actually tied up, locked up by virtue of the fact that it's held in IHT portfolios. So there may be different circumstances next time, as you say. And finally, just a quick note on Brexit. Still the same attitude there? Uh, I'm, I'm, I was surprised by how the UK economy appeared to take Brexit in its stride. I think, and I may have touched on this last time, I think the biggest risk over the next couple of years is that the negotiations will drag on. In many cases, they'll become messy and complicated and difficult. And my concern is that what that tends to do is it feeds through to the decision makers within UK PLC, if you like, and it would be quite natural behavior for the chief executives and finance directors of substantial businesses to say, you know what, we had been planning a major investment, a major expansion scheme because of all this uncertainty, we may just decide to sit on our hands for a while to see how the dust settles. Once you get that um, hiatus in investment, potentially that can feed through into a slowing economy. And obviously, that could have negative uh, implications in lots of different areas, including the stock market itself. Uh, so I think that has become more of a concern. I think the, the UK economy looks as if it may end up slowing uh, more rapidly than I had initially sort of felt in the immediate aftermath of Brexit. On the other hand, um, there's been a lot of talk about the consumer being under pressure uh, because wage inflation has not kept pace with general levels of inflation. Well, that was very well flagged uh, immediately after the uh, Sterling's devaluation that um, raw materials, food, fuel, energy, um, those sorts of costs would rise. But actually, they've risen. We knew they were going to rise. It's a one-off increase. Uh, those inflation figures will normalize next year for sure. Uh, and actually, we're not in a position where the economy is overheating. There's no sign of wage inflation. I don't see interest rates going up anytime soon now because there's no sign of the economy overheating. So there's no need to increase interest rates. And that means that affordability servicing people's mortgages, for instance, that most um, significant expense in most families' lives is not going to get out of control. And therefore, I think, you know, whilst people might tighten their belts a little bit, they're not going to experience a very corrosive inflationary environment, which really means that the value of their pound is not going anywhere. And of course, we live in a very competitive environment, certainly in terms of retail, leisure, uh, anything related to the UK consumer. And so uh, consumers, frankly, um, you know, have a great deal of choice and companies have to be very, very um, competitive in order to attract and retain those customers. And a, a final point on that, I'd still absolutely convinced that uh, UK will become an increasingly attractive destination for both overseas investment, but also overseas tourism. And at the same time, many holiday makers, rather than going to Spain, perhaps, will choose to stay at home and spend their pounds um, in the UK. And, and why not? So, so generally speaking, a little more concern over the, the length of the negotiations with Brexit and the potential impact of, of that feeding through into the economy, but reasons for optimism as well. Well, last time we spoke, you said that you were, by inclination, a bit of a 
glass half empty man, which is a bit strange for an equity manager, but <laughs> he, uh, it sounds to me like you've uh, at least managed to moderate around the, the half empty or the half full at least. So thank you very much for joining us today and having a fascinating discussion about the intricacies of uh, venture capital trusts and the outlook for the UK economy. Well, thank you very much, Jonathan. Yes, uh, I'm a big believer in managing my expectations. And so I'm definitely uh, veer towards being a glass half empty man. Um, and I also make a point of telling the management teams of the companies we invest in, please, please, please learn the mantra of under promising and over delivering. If you do that consistently, the valuation of your business will take care of itself over time. You don't need to worry about the share price. You just have to worry about managing expectations and delivering to those expectations. We hope you enjoyed this Moneymakers podcast. Our podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on a variety of podcast channels including SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and also Share Radio's platform. The podcasts are free. If you want to find out more or listen to some of the earlier interviews in the series, please go to our website, www.money-makers.co, or follow us in future on any of the channels just mentioned. Thank you for listening.